Thank you for listening to our Let's Talk Future podcast series. In this episode, our guest is Anusha Rodriguez, Managing Director and Head of Research, Due Diligence and Alternatives at Oppenheimer Asset Management. Our host is Peter Cataray, Head of Sales and Marketing for Oppenheimer Asset Management. This episode was recorded on June 4th, 2021. Please subscribe to our channel to instantly access previous episodes. Subscribing also means that you won't miss out on new episodes with our thought leaders who are bringing you timely and relevant insights about the markets, investing, business, new technology, and life in general. Thank you for joining us. This is Peter Cattery, Head of Sales and Marketing for Oppenheimer Asset Management. I'm joined today by our Head of Research and Head of Oppenheimer's Alternative Investment Group, Anusha Rodriguez. Today, Anusha and I will be talking where alternative investments have been, where they are, and where they're going. Anusha, thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate you being back. We had an opportunity to talk about a year ago in August in what was a very uncertain period and a period of volatility. We had an election looming. We had a country in the eye of a COVID storm. And we were just stabilizing from a very significant peak to trough drawdown in the U.S. equity markets. And during that conversation, you shared with our listeners the areas that you focus on as it relates to alternative investments, really particularly during these periods of risk. And you focused on a few core elements. Number one, the importance of having diversifying strategies in your asset allocation, including both public and private. You really talked about focusing on an experienced group of investors with a methodical approach to capital allocation and risk management. And finally, you talked about focusing on really a subset of the alternative investment space that includes slightly smaller, more specialized, and perhaps more unique investment strategies. So with quite a year behind us, let's sort of start by bringing us up to speed and where we are in the alternative investment space. Thank you, Peter. When we spoke in August, we talked about the market environment during the height of the volatility. It was after the start of COVID and the new stay-at-home mandates. We talked about the quick rebound that we saw in April, which was much less than expected. But performance in 2020 overall was really largely dependent on style factor exposure. What exposures did managers have? And if it was growth and momentum, it tended to drive positive performance. If they were short, more value-oriented stocks, they were able to benefit from that. But it really was an actively managed portfolio that succeeded in a year like 2020. 2021 has been anything but predictable also. I mean, we've seen choppy markets, deleveraging, frothiness, interest rate sensitivity. We no longer have the sort of beginning of the pandemic, but we don't have the end of it yet. The vaccine rollout has been much faster than everybody expected. And I think that's a positive we've seen. The, the part that's been is known is that the length of the uncertainty is the uncertain part. The fact that there will be uncertainty is something we all expect. And what you need are skilled managers who are able to take in the information that's given to them and evaluate that and make decisions throughout the period. Their ability to short, their ability to utilize leverage, their ability to diversify their portfolio. All of those are tools that have helped managers in 2020 and in the first half of 2021 this year. It sounds like in hindsight, your advice was spot on for 2020 with those three core elements, but obviously there were a lot of surprises. What were some of the things from your seat as a head of research that were a surprise in the last 12 months? 
there's the obvious surprises that all of us can talk about, but I'd say that the biggest surprise is really clients' appetite for alternatives. We've been advocating for this type of active management for months or years and maybe even decades. And it seemed like last year, people started to understand that the benefit of having active management in your portfolio can really benefit overall. You have managers who reduce the volatility on the downside, but are able to participate on the upside. And that's what helps them succeed in the long run. And the actual just capital flows into alternatives in a year like 2020 were as high as we've ever seen. I think that would probably be the biggest surprise other than the obvious ones. You talked a, a bit about appetite for private equity, and clearly 2020 was a year with, with private equity at the, at the forefront of the news, and the SPAC revolution really took hold. Spend a minute on the private equity space and, and your thoughts on where we are. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about flows for the entire alternatives industry. So we talk about alternatives as hedge funds, private equity, and real estate. The data for this is separated. So total hedge fund assets reached about $4 trillion in March. This is the highest it's ever been. It's an increase of almost $250 billion from just Q4 2020. Over the past 12 months, hedge funds have made more than half a trillion dollars. That's $500 billion in trading profits alone just in the last 12 months. At the end of 2020, there were over 3,600 hedge funds that were registered in the U.S. alone. The top 15 of those have almost $600 billion in management. So it's very concentrated among some of the largest managers in the, in the industry. As it relates to private equity, the estimates are that the industry is between five and six trillion dollars. The data for it is a little bit harder to get and to calculate based on sort of how the drawdown structures of private equity work. But McKinsey quotes that there's over 7,000 active PE funds globally as of April 2021. And Q3 2020 was the highest deal activity for private equity that we've ever seen. Total transaction volume just in that quarter was $168 billion, which is a 90% increase for the same period the year before. Those metrics are show the comment I was making about the surprise. It's that flows are really coming into the industry. People are understanding how to utilize alternatives in their portfolio and where to utilize it. And it ends up becoming more of a conversation of your liquidity needs at that time. But I also want to point out that performance is very critical to remember. There's flows into the industry, but there's often a 10% swing in the best performing fund and the worst performing fund in any given time period. And those experiences can compound and are really important to keep in mind. So that sort of advocates the need for proper due diligence and understanding what you're owning. So with that in mind, let's take a step forward to where we are today, Anusha. We really have come through 2020 and all of the turmoil that was associated with it. And we appear to be in the midst of a reemergence of the economy and a social reopening, which are obviously very powerful trends for long-term investors. But as we move past the pandemic, we're faced with sort of a new set of challenges that appear to be taking shape. Inflation, excess money supply, supply chain disruption, scarcity of employees, there's a new set of issues on the horizon. What's the mood of the hedge fund and private equity managers you speak with every day? And how do they feel about this market? That's really a question about their, their view on risk, right? So how are they thinking about risk in their portfolio? And how do they, what do they worry about? And then how do they show that in their, in their strategy? 
And that's really dependent on a manager's philosophy and how they think about the market. It it varies. It's varied year over year. I'd say in 2020 and 2021, we've seen the most active management of any given period that we've looked at in the past, which means that these managers are really taking into consideration all of the various changes that are happening in the market. I wouldn't say that it makes them worried about putting capital to work. It's that they're very cognizant about thinking about where to put it to work and how to put it to work. And that sort of changed their exposures. We've seen changes in their top positions. We've seen them be more active. There's been there's been a shift from growth into value, and that's been a big change as well. And so thinking about how managers are looking at the risk in a portfolio, that's something that we've been focused on evaluating when we're talking to them intra-period. So one of the unique things, Anusha, that you and I talk about, about your role is that not only do you get to speak to a wide range of managers and, and literally hundreds, if not thousands a year, you also spend a great deal of time with very sophisticated investors, endowments, foundations. Give us a little insight into what the smart money is thinking about right now and where they're allocating in, in your arena. When clients are looking at asset allocation, they're really seeing long-short equity, event-driven, and private investments on the alternative side, complemented by the traditional fixed income and, and equity investments that we offer to them as well. On the alternative side, long-short equity to us has been a combination of managers who are broadly looking across sectors or narrowly focused on one specific sector. We're finding a portfolio of three to four or five long-short equity managers really creates the right amount of diversification to participate in that space. And then on the other side, we're finding clients very actively engaged in event-driven managers. These are managers that typically are taking advantage of the merger and arbitrage opportunities or distressed opportunities, and they provide the real diversification to a portfolio because they are uncorrelated to traditional equity and fixed income markets. That's on the hedge fund side. On the private side, we've really seen a lot of interest across a number of different categories. Most of those have been driven by the tailwinds we've seen through COVID from a technology advancement and stay at work from home environment has really created disruption. It's been a way for clients to monetize their ability to invest in private companies and to see those companies growing at a pace that's really been an opportunity we haven't seen in the past. Another angle that's been really unique for the clients that we've been speaking with are, are opportunity zones. And it's particularly important to have that conversation today because it was a program that was put in motion in 2017. From 17 until now, there have been various terms of the program that have been beneficial to clients to make investments. And one of the biggest opportunities of that expires at the end of 2021. So the Opportunity Zone program was put in place for clients to invest capital gains into an opportunity zone vehicle, which is in a neighborhood that's been designated by the governors of each state of areas that needed improvement. And so they've been able to invest in, in real estate in those areas. The clients get three main tax benefits. They get to defer their capital gains taxes owed now. The taxes that they owe later are reduced by currently 10%, and that's what expires at the end of this year which is a very big benefit. The third benefit is actually what we find to be most compelling is that the investment that you make in the opportunity zone grows tax-free for the entire life of the investment. 
it does have to be held for 10 years. And so liquidity is a very significant trade-off that a client has to be cognizant of. But I think that the ability for clients to capitalize on this opportunity to invest in an area within real estate that we believe is, is unique and compelling, regardless of these tax benefits. But with these tax benefits, you really sort of add between three and 500 basis points of outsized returns that a client can, can achieve just by investing in the opportunity zones. So that's been an area that is new um, and is very investable right now. And I think that the opportunity will change at the end of this year. So I think it's something that people should really pay attention to for the next few months. Anusha, that, in hearing you describe opportunity zones, that also appears to me to sort of bump up against what is most likely another conversation you're having regularly about the impact or ESG, environmental, social, and corporate governance focus of many investors. Do you consider an opportunity zone part of the ESG movement? Yeah, it, it's a good point. It depends on how strictly defined someone is thinking about impact investing in ESG investments. There are certain definitions of it by which opportunity zones would not fit into those. but we feel and our generally speaking our clients feel that it is considered to be impact investing or a form of impact investing the opportunity zones were zip codes designated by the governors to say these are areas that really need capital infusion to build them out and to revitalize these areas and in order to do that that's really sort of making an impact on that community and because of that we are seeing people look at it in that way the whole theme of renewable energy infrastructure and utilities, this, these are some of the best performing sectors in 2020. It was driven by moral conscious to want to invest in these spaces. It's also being supported politically. And because of that, there's a lot more opportunity to invest in these areas. The concept of investing in renewable energy and infrastructure 10 years ago is very different from now. I think now it has become a very interesting investment idea as well, not only a, um, an area to invest to do better, but to do better and to be, have profits from, from those investments that you're making. The cost of renewable energy is dipped lower and below the cost of traditional sources like coal over the last decade. We've written a number of pieces about renewable energies that clients have found to be very educational on just what's happening in the space, how has it transformed. And the pro-climate agenda and additional infrastructure spend that we expect from, from the current administration really should augment the clean energy sector and the improvements that we're going to be able to see there. And so I think that the ESG and impact investing, along with opportunity zones, really sort of round out what clients are looking for in a portfolio now. Let's revisit one other topic that's so relevant today that I know is a, a big part of your conversations, and you touched on it briefly, but let's talk for a moment about SPACs or special purpose acquisition companies that are built really designed to facilitate an acquisition or a merger type transaction. It's been a, a major part of the news and a major part of your client conversation. So share your thoughts on them in general and where we are right now in that process. Yeah, so I think the, the whole SPAC revolution or, or revitalization really has created opportunity for private equity in a way that we hadn't seen in the past. We've been actively involved in expanding our private equity offerings over the last five to 10 years. And given the focus, we've seen how private equity is broadly transformed and changed. 
companies had been staying private for longer and they still are. They were delaying the traditional IPO route or direct listing route because it was costly and less lucrative for them. And it was just easier to run the company in a private way and raise capital from private equity firms. But the SPAC opportunity for them really gives them the opportunity to go public through this SPAC, but without having to be the company going out and running the IPO show on their own. And that for a private company is very unique. The We raised actually with a partner of ours, a dedicated SPAC vehicle earlier this year. So to us, it's, it shows a sort of tactical opportunity in a near-term way. In Q1 alone, almost 300 SPACs completed an IPO raising, a total of almost $100 billion in the first quarter. So the opportunity is real. Um, the complexities of the SPAC option are probably better suited for a different conversation, but we've published a primer and there's a lot of information explaining how SPACs work practically. But overall, we think that the, the regulations, they provide protection for SPAC investors. There's warrants and opportunities for investors that really benefit their ability to participate in the, in the program. But really, from a private equity perspective, it's changed the landscape because the number of public companies has come down so much because of all of the, the headwinds that we'd seen before. But the SPAC market opens up that opportunity for them to go public. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, so, Anusha, let's shift gears with the balance of time we have and talk a little bit about what's ahead for the alternative investment industry and, and for maybe the markets in general. And as the head of research for our platform, you and your team spend a lot of your time thinking about what's ahead and where to allocate capital for the next three to five years. What are the areas you're most interested in learning about and educating our clients about for the next three to five years? You know, the post-COVID landscape is really going to be critical to evaluating how managers are able to obtain information, how they're able to trade their portfolios. Evaluating that will take time to see what types of themes and sectors and companies really stand out. I think the near-term winners were obvious, but the longer-term winners will take some time to sort of play out in the market. And that that evaluation process by my team and the research team will, will take time. But we'll continue to advocate for diversifying managers within a event-driven Multi-manager and multi-strategy funds have really proved to have some of the better performing strategies in 2021. They're able to move capital faster than you are able to if you're not part of a multi-manager program. So those are things that we're looking at very closely. We are always looking at managers that are not in the crowded headline positions. We think that there's a benefit to investors to get exposure to these types of managers. And when they're not impacted by broad industry events. For example, the beginning of 2021, we had the Reddit and GameStop situation. We had the deleveraging of Archigo's capital. And none of those impacted the managers on our platform because they aren't in those types of trades. And that is really important for us going forward. I guess my next question about looking forward would be, you know, we've seen dramatic structural changes to the public markets over the last several years. We've seen the number of public companies shrink dramatically, and we've seen a tremendous growth in private markets. Does this change the way a young company raises capital going forward? Do you think the trend in private equity will continue to be so powerful as we look ahead? I, I do think that younger companies, they remain private if they can benefit from added funding and expertise and support from pedigreed private equity firms. 
Probably yes, that they will continue to stay private for longer. But the SPAC conversation we had, there is a window now of a way to go public without the challenges of going public immediately or direct listing. So I think that there's going to be a couple different options for these younger companies to look for, and it will create a lot of opportunity within the private space. I mean, there's a lot of capital to deploy in private equity, but there's also a lot of opportunities where to deploy that. And I think that a a client would need to really think about what are the various options there are within the private landscape and how you can think about the liquidity risks you're taking and the sector exposures you're having and think about longer term what sort of impact we're looking to have in a portfolio. So for us, we've done a lot in the technology space. We've tended to focus on later stage growth companies because we do think that in a 12 to 36 month period, there will be some form of an exit. It's either a buyout or an IPO typically. But we've also looked at the very opposite end of that spectrum of early stage VC, where the IPO conversations are not even part of the conversation because they're so far out. And it is probably some sort of strategic partnership that will be the outcome for those very early stage companies. And I think that the way people think about private equity is changing. It's really an equity allocation that you're you're deciding to partake in. It's just less liquid. And that really also speaks to a trend you discussed early on, which was really kind of this hybrid structure that is coming to pass where companies allocate or funds allocate to businesses early on and are really stewards all the way through to the public markets and continue to invest. You were very much at the forefront of talking about that. Where is that development in the industry? Crossover capital. So someone who's knowledgeable on the private side can help them go public, but also stays with them while they're public. Those are the types of investors that companies really are looking out for now, because when they go public, they want to be with somebody who they believe will help them thrive as a public company as well. The time when they list to go public is really for them the start of a new chapter. It's not the end of the private story. It's just a continuation of it. And that's really something that I think has been a change in the industry. You're seeing a lot more funds that are typically invested in public markets, participating in the private and the other way around as well. And I think that that's something that we'll continue to see. So Anusha, I want to conclude our conversation with a question. I know you're asked a lot by clients, but as our head of research, you spend a great deal of time both doing individual fund and manager research, but also participating in the asset allocation conversation with clients. So I know this is a very broad general conversation or, or question, but is there a, a right allocation client should aim for in the alternative investment space generally? We start by saying that every client portfolio at Oppenheimer is a custom allocation. So any beginning allocations we propose That's really just the starting point of the conversation. And then every single one is a custom allocation after that point. But broadly speaking, the industry used to talk about a 60-40 allocation. 60% equities, 40% to fixed income. It's pretty standard allocation. Then when alts became slightly more mainstream, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, there was an allocation target in the 10 to 15% range. And those were pretty typical allocations that people looked at. But if I look through to some of our client portfolios, we see them with 25 to 50% allocation to alternatives and sometimes even higher. And I know that sounds very high and I'm sure probably too high to some people, 
But the reason is some of the comments I've made throughout. I mean, we think of long short equity and private equity right alongside a long only equity, a ETF, a mutual fund, a single stock. All of those are equities. So if you're thinking about your 60% equity allocation, the only thing limiting you from participating in long short equity or private equity or a single company private investment is your liquidity tolerance. And so if you don't have a near-term liquidity need, you're possibly able to allocate more to the equity side. And that's definitely true for the hedge fund side because those tend to be monthly or quarterly liquidity anyway. So even if you do have a liquidity need, you're able to get your capital back fairly quickly. So that's sort of how we get to clients thinking about alternatives in a broader way. It's not really an asset class in itself. I mean, it's really a nomenclature of the legal structure in which you're investing in is a limited partnership. But we think you should look at what is in that limited partnership. If it's private equity or long short equity, it should be thought of in that possibly 60% equity allocation. And then if it's private credit or some sort of credit arbitrage or fixed income arbitrage or distressed investment, those could be thought about in your fixed income allocation. And then really what we put in a diversifying strategies category is how we think of an event-driven fund. So something that is uncorrelated to equities and fixed income and should produce returns in an environment where equities and fixed income are not able to. Also, they wouldn't be able to keep up with the markets if the markets are up. But those are really diversifying strategies for us. And so, Anusha, as we conclude, I, first, I want to thank you for joining us and for sharing your insight and, and your experience. And it's clear to me that there are three core takeaways our clients should hear from this. Number one, the health of the alternative investment space is, is strong, it's growing, and there's real talent that you're being able to source in that area. I think you reiterated the importance of diversification very clearly and something our clients should spend a great deal of time on. And certainly there's many interesting things on the horizon in the alternative investment space that you and your team continue to focus on. So thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Peter, for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Future. Don't miss the next episode where we'll explore a variety of market moving ideas and perspectives, bringing our firm's financial thought leadership directly to you. Please hit the subscribe button today. Thank you.